Welcome to The R Word. We're here to talk about reparations in the church in Northwest Arkansas. Today, I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Dustin McGowan. What's up? Hey, Dustin. We're here to discuss an interview that I recorded with Dr. Soong Chan Ra. Dr. Soong Chan Ra holds a THD from Duke Divinity School, an MDiv and DMIN from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and a THM from Harvard University. He's written many books, among them Many Colors, Cultural Intelligence for a Changing Church, Prophetic Lament, A Call for Justice in Troubled Times, and Unsettling Truths, The Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery. He is an ordained pastor in the Evangelical Covenant Church and professor of evangelism at Fuller Theological Seminary. So let's get into the interview. Dr. Rod, thank you for being with us today. Glad to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. My pleasure. Well, first, Dr. Rod, can you share some of your story with us? Who are you and why are you here today? Uh, talking about reparations and the church and uh, at the CCDA conference. Sure. Um, my background is that I was born in Korea and uh, came to the U.S. after my sixth birthday. And uh, due to a number of different circumstances, uh, we ended up living in an inner city neighborhood in Baltimore. And in Baltimore, um, the neighborhood was very diverse. She was like a third poor black, a third poor white, and a third recent immigrant, uh, many of them Korean. And what I realized is I saw this diversity very early on in the late 1970s. And what was difficult was that despite our commonality, which was our poverty, all of us were poor, uh, we couldn't get along with each other. Uh, you first saw, not so much in elementary school. In elementary school, we sort of got along, we hung out with each other. But in middle school, you started seeing some of the divisions where the black kids sat at one table, white kids sat at another, immigrant kids sat at another table. And so you're already beginning to see at the age of 12, 13, 14, some of the division along racial lines. By the time you got to senior high school, you had full-blown gangs, kind of conflicts along these racial lines, fights, all that kind of stuff. And so I'm you know, a junior high kid watching all of this and uh, growing up in that neighborhood, um, I was wondering why, why can't we get along? Um, here is actual diversity. Here's all these different people living together and the commonality of poverty, and yet we could not get along with one another. Uh, and I thought, okay, maybe that's just the world and maybe it'll be better in the church. Uh, and then I found out that the church is actually worse in many ways. In the church, you not only not get along with each other, you don't go to the same church. Um, and so that's kind of been my lifelong pursuit to figure some of that out, uh, particularly as a Christian, as someone in the church. Why is it that the church doesn't do any better? Now, we can say the world is messed up because we got issues and we fight with one another. But the church, you know, we're about reconciliation. We were reconciled to Christ because our sin caused brokenness. And Christ did the work to bring us together. And so the church should be doing better. Uh, but it turns out the church is actually doing worse in many spaces. Uh, so again, as an academic and as a former pastor, uh, I spent 17 years in the church as a local church pastor and then 17 years in the uh, academy. To me, it's important to do the academic work but really see how does that apply in the local communities. So that's been kind of my life calling. Um, part of it for me is it's very important for me to think about the benefit and the well-being of the church. Um, the church in so many ways has been a place that has blessed me and, and cared for me and caused and nurtured me. And so I wanna see the church do well. And I feel like racial justice, racial reconciliation, um, kind of the 
tearing down the dividing walls of hostility is a really, really important part of, uh, or should be an important part of church life. And sadly, we don't always see that, but that's been kind of something that I'm passionate about. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that introduction, Dr. Ra. Um, there, there are many things that I'd like to talk about, but <laughs> for the sake of time, sure. I want to focus on uh, the two books that I mentioned above, Many Colors and mm -hmm. Unsettling Truths, and five themes from those books, which are history, power, mm -hmm. stories and systems, and truth and conciliation. Mm -hmm. Uh, so as to history, mm -hmm. you open chapter two of Many Colors, uh, understanding our history with this epigraph. We should not only be familiar with individual stories of redemption, but also with the history of how God has changed communities and peoples through his redemptive work. You describe the power of remembrance mm -hmm. and lamentation mm -hmm. in the context of America's racist history. Can you comment on the importance of history? Yes, I have a personal interest. I was a history major in, uh, in college. And then um, in my doctoral program, I was a split between theological ethics and U.S. church history. So just kind of as an academic discipline, it's something that I've been really having an interest in. But to me, more so as a pastor and as a Christian thinker, um, the Bible often says, remember. Now, sometimes that's good. Remember that God has provided for you. But there are times it says, remember that you were once slaves in Egypt. And so uh, when God's call is for us to remember history, sometimes we rejoice in the good things that God has done. And there are times we reflect and say, oh, that, that was not so great. And so history is in many ways neutral. It's not trying to tell you one thing or another. It's just telling it like it is. And again, to me as a Christian, that's an important part of my working out of my salvation. Right. So individually, when I think about uh, what led me to meet Christ? Well, it's the remembering and the history of my brokenness in my life. Uh, that's an important part of leading me to this need that says, I need God to intervene. And I don't see why that personal narrative can't be translated into our collective narrative. That when we look back on our history, we can see some things that are great and rejoice in those things. But we can also say, wait, that's, that's, that's some broken stuff there. Slavery clearly is part of our broken history. Uh, our treatment of Native Americans, part of our broken history. And for us to gloss over that or to forget about that seems to me doing a disservice to truth. Because history, if we understand the truth of history, if we understand the depth of history and remember as God calls us to do, it should lead to repentance. It should lead to crying out to God. And I think our neglect of history, our neglect of the more troubling parts of our narrative actually make it difficult for us to cry out to God in need. That's good. Uh, you open chapter two of Many Colors, Power Dynamics with this epigraph. As we look for ways to cross cultures and develop cultural intelligence, we need to understand the impact and role of complex power dynamics. Mm -hmm. You describe the need to talk about power and privilege. You write, for many American evangelicals, discussions about, about power seem sorted or out of place in a Christian context. However, discussions about power are usually avoided by those who have it. They don't want to discuss the dynamic lest doing so leads to a power shift. Mm -hmm. But we need to talk about these realities. Can you comment on the importance of power dynamics in talking about this? Sure. Things don't go away because we don't talk about them. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, 
in friendships and relationships, if you have an issue and you don't talk about it, it's still going to come back up. It's still going to show up at some point in the friendship or in the relationship. And so the dynamics of power is, 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 is just like one of those things that we don't talk about. And in some ways, by not talking about it, we give it more power. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't talk about the reality, and that's to me, again, it's one of those things that this is reality. This is not something we're making up. Um, when one person has more money, then they probably have more power. When one person is in a particular position, then they have more power. Um, no amount of denial is going to actually change that social reality. So for me as an immigrant, um, I do have some power. I agree. And as a male and as an Asian, there are certain things that I hold that give me power. Uh, my degrees give me power. My tenure professorship gives me power. Um, I can't walk into a room and pretend I don't have that. That would be lying. <laughs> that would not be honest truth telling to say, oh, no, I'm the same as everybody else. I don't have the education that I have or the, the faculty position that I have. If I were to walk into a classroom and say to the students, oh, I have no power over you. Well, actually, I do because I grade the papers and I assign the grades. And so that's just honesty. Now, once you recognize that power dynamic, then it can lead to conversation, right? And even for me as the one with power as the professor, I can recognize that and not lord it over others if I acknowledge I have that power, right? So if I'm saying up front, as your professor, as the person with the power in the classroom, I want to let you know that I, I recognize that. And so let's have an honest conversation with that reality in place. Now, if there's a denial of that, then it actually gives more power. It's unsaid, it's unspoken. So you walk into a room and you know the power dynamics are there. Uh, this person has authority over you. This person has power over you. This person has more money. This person has a privilege or a position. And again, if it's in denial, then the person without the power is even more disempowered because you can't speak to that truth. Uh, that's why I often talk about how do you upend some of these power dynamics? And to me, one of the ways to do that is actually putting yourself in positions where you are not always the powerful one. Mm -hmm. If power is unspoken, you want to walk into a situation and pretend you have the power or you pretend that there is no power. But if power is acknowledged, then you work together to work through those things. So, for example, uh, Korean-American Ivy League grad, I've got power. Uh, there was a point in my life where I was a church planner. I was 29 years old, planning a church in an urban neighborhood. I realized that I was coming with some assumed power as an Ivy League graduate, as someone with two master's degrees. I was already coming in there with power. Yet at the same time, I recognized that I needed to acknowledge those who had the social capital in the room, those who understood the context better than I did, even with all my degrees. And that turned out to be Black pastors in my community. So I uh, intentionally went to Black pastors in Cambridge and Boston. I asked about eight of them, uh, would you mentor me? Would you be my pastor, my bishop? Uh, and to their credit, none of them you know, kicked me out or never threw me out. And uh, I think they appreciated that I knew that it was their neighborhood I was moving into. Uh, many of the pastors were second-generation pastors. Their fathers had started the church, and they were now the second-generation pastors. So they had a stake and a commitment to that community that me, as someone who just kind of moved into the neighborhood about four or five years ago, I didn't have that. And so I needed to acknowledge that and also say, 
to my uh, dear brothers and sisters who are African-American pastors, I want to put myself under your authority. And so what I realize is that those of us who have power who don't acknowledge it will often not seek places of submission. Mm -hmm. And I've said this before about um, most people of color have always had someone of authority over them that is not of their own race. I've always had white professors. I've always had white supervisors in the church. I've always had white bishops or uh, superintendents who were my overseers as a pastor, uh, teachers, professors, all of that. Uh, not many white Americans have had that experience. Uh, and now that's a privilege and a power, right? Um, you, you lack an experience that actually where you're in a position of submission. So I oftentimes say to particularly white church planners, um, look for positions and places where you are under the submission and authority of a person different than you, because there's a dynamic that you learn that you can't learn when you're always in an assumed position of power. Uh, and acknowledging that power allows the humility to say, but I want to grow. There's some things that I'm lacking. Um, so I think, you know, when I think about how does how do we benefit the church? How do we serve the church? That posture of humility and that honesty of recognizing as a white person, I have power. As an educated person, I have power. As a male, I have power. By recognizing that, you also recognize, but I also need to be in positions where I learn from those who are different from me and kind of give up that power or, or subsume that power to those who have a different type of power. That's, let's be blunt, that's what Jesus did. Mm -hmm. It's not like Jesus ever denied his power. He was very clear, no, I'm the son of man. No, I've got power, I can call down the angels. But he used that power in submission to his life, his death on the cross. And so if Jesus is doing that, then certainly we can follow that example in the church. Mm, that's so good, Dr. Hall. That's so good. Thank you for sharing that. And, and not only uh, the, the precept, but the example in your life in that mm -hmm. season, mm -hmm. submitting to those African-American pastors. Mm -hmm. That's a good example for us to follow. Um, so now I want to talk about Unsettling Truths, which sure. may be my favorite book that I've read, uh, <laughs> that you've written or co-written rather yes. with, with Mark Charles. So in chapter two, uh, The Power of Narratives and the Imagination, mm. uh, you first describe Berger and Luckman's yeah. theory of the construction of social reality, which, as I understand it, mm -hmm. argues that individuals and institutions influence each other. Yeah in a process of externalization, institutionalization, and internalization. Now, those mm -hmm. are some several syllable words, yes. but uh, I mean, it really made a difference in my life when I read this. It really was a light bulb moment for me. So uh, when an individual starts an institution, mm -hmm. he or she puts part of him or herself into it. This right. is externalization. Mm -hmm. um, but then over time, the institution outlives the individual who started it true. and it has a life of its own or mm. institutionalization and then when an individual joins the institution mm. the institution puts part of itself into him or her this is internalization and so uh this theory is powerful by itself but in the book you put it in the context of america's racist history yeah uh which you suggest can be understood in terms of systems namely slavery jim crow and yeah. new jim crow or mass incarceration yeah uh, that are supported by stories, yeah. uh, namely white supremacy and American exceptionalism. And, and you end the chapter powerfully with these words. You write, uh, I quote, in, in the work of healing brokenness in the world, 
the failure to recognize the power of narratives could derail any progress. Mm -hmm. Attempts to simply change the individual and to rid individual prejudices prove to be insufficient in this endeavor. Even attempts to change systems and structures mm -hmm. may not be sufficient as new systems and structures take the place of old ones. Narratives formed by the social and theological imagination are the powers and principalities that must be addressed mm -hmm. so that all levels of so social reality are confronted. Mm -hmm. that, that was a lot, but can you, <laughs> can you talk about that? Sure. First of all, you get an A for an excellent summary of, of that chapter. Hey, thanks, thanks. <laughs> I appreciate good, careful reading of the text, yeah. and you did a phenomenal job of summarizing and getting the key points of the text. So that's, that's uh, very good. Thank you. Um, I'll, I'll give you the background of that. First of all, I, I was reading uh, these two sociologists, Berger and Luckman, and um, the actually interesting story is that Berger taught at Boston University, and uh, he was writing around the time that there's the God is Dead movement at Harvard Divinity School. And so you have this movement on, you're on the opposite sides of the river in Boston, on the Charles River. And uh, the, the Harvard movement is God is dead. We don't need God. Uh, why do we need God? Because human society has flourishing. We don't need God. God is dead movement. So Berger, Christian sociologist, is actually responding, not as a theologian, but as a sociologist. And so when he talks about systems, structures, uh, uh, individuals, and narratives, and imagination, he's pointing out the, the deficiency in these things, the, the brokenness, the sinfulness in these things. And in that, he's crying out for the need for God. So it's really interesting how these two theories are developing simultaneously. The, um, the Christian theory out of divinity school is like, we don't need God anymore. And the sociological theory that you described from Berger is actually saying, no, look how broken on all levels of our society, the individual system structures and narratives, all of them are broken, we really need God. Mm -hmm. So to me, that, that framing has always been intriguing that he is a Christian sociologist in his field trying to understand the need for God and doing that from out of his, um, his academic discipline. Really interesting stuff. Uh, but the other part of that for me is that you know, I've, been, I've been an evangelical, you know, grew up in a Southern Baptist church and went to a reform seminary and uh, I'm uh, ordained in the Evangelical Covenant Church. I've been an evangelical. But I've had the opportunity to connect with more mainline Protestant liberals. And the division oftentimes has been between these two groups, the evangelical and the, and the mainline, is that evangelicals tend to focus on the personal, right? Uh, we get rid of racism by getting rid of prejudice in the individual. In the mainline, it goes in the other direction, which is we deal with the systems and structures and deal with systemic racism, systemic injustice. Now, I've struggled with that because I'm in both places and I'm seeing, wait, both are right. Of course, there's racism that comes out of the individual broken heart, but there's also evil in the system and structure that leads to uh, unjust systems of, of sin. So I've been caught in the middle of this and I'm trying to say, hey, it's, it's obvious to me that it's a both hand. Mm -hmm. It's both the individual sinful, evil brokenness that gets externalized into the system but it's also the system and structure that forms a life of its own and impacts the individual. Then I realized this third leg of the stool, this third piece with Berger and Lechner, and they're saying there is something called internalization, where the system is so powerful and the individual uh, internalizes what the system teaches. And this is what I talk about with narratives and imagination, narratives, stories, uh, worldview, uh, ethics, ethos, culture, 
all of these things that become a part of the individual that they internalize from social narratives and societal pressure. So it's a both and. It's the individual, but it's also the social. And that narrative gets so deeply embedded that even if you try to change the individual and change the system, the narrative continues on because it's so powerful. One, because it's hidden, right? I mean, uh, my, one of my favorite movies, uh, Usual Suspects, has that great line, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled off is making everybody believe he doesn't exist. That's a pretty good trick. And one of the things that I think the devil has been able to pull off is to say, oh, I'm, I'm only evil in individuals or sinful in individuals, mm-hmm. but not in systems and structures. Or I'm only sinful in, in systems and structures, but don't worry about the narratives and imagination. Mm-hmm. So the example that I give is I grew up both Baptist and Pentecostal, which is a weird combination. <laughs> yeah. But we had some great retreats because the first night would be very Baptist and we would, you know, say the sinner's prayer, lead everybody to Christ, and everybody would accept Christ on that first night. But on the second night, because we're Pentecostal, we would have our exorcism and lay, pray hands and lay hands and pray for, for the devil to leave. And I, I joke about it now, but we would pray for, you know, a 14-year-old boy and discern that this 14-year-old boy had four demons of lust, and we pray the demons of lust out. Many years later, I thought, wait, did a 14-year-old boy need demons to be lustful? <laughs> I've been a youth pastor for a long time. You don't need any additional motivation for a 14-year-old boy to be lustful. So thinking, and then I thought, wait, if, if you know, don't try this at home. But if you're the devil and you're dispersing demonic powers, why would you waste four devils <laughs> on a 14-year-old boy in Northern Virginia somewhere? Why would you do that? You would actually, like that line from Unusual Suspect, you would put them where the devil is actually hidden and the demonic powers are actually more uh, sublime and more uh, insidious, right? You don't have to do it in this explicit way. And that is where the narratives comes in because narratives are harder to figure out. And so I argue that individuals will come and go, right? So, um, and individuals can change like Lincoln and MLK, uh, they change the world through their individual externalization. Uh, and that happens the other way, slave owners and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, politicians who supported slavery. Those were individuals that negatively changed the system. But we also had systemic change. We needed uh, the intervention of the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation to end slavery. We needed the Civil Rights Movement to end Jim Crow laws. Um, but both of those are system structures and individuals, they come and go. But underlying all of that, the narratives have stayed the same. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not really picky about what language people use. You can say uh, white supremacy, but people have certain associations with that. I talk about things like white primacy mm-hmm. uh, or white centrality, where the white narrative is centralized. And if you centralize that, then the other narratives are secondary. And in the process of doing that, you keep rebuilding the systems or producing individuals with that narrative. And so the system keeps rebuilding. So you get rid of slavery, but Jim Crow takes its place. Mm-hmm. You get rid of Jim Crow, a new Jim Crow takes its place. Uh, you get rid of certain expressions in politics, um, but then another expression comes along that is just as evil in so many different ways. So the narrative piece is kind of a third piece that I was trying to figure out, well, how do we confront narratives and imagination, worldview, ethos, culture, you know, however we want to define it, because it's more hidden 
more insidious, but it's, it's very powerful, just as powerful as individuals who want to bring change, just as powerful as systems and structures, but it's much more difficult to identify. And that's part of what I wanted to, Mark and I were trying to identify, what are the embedded internalized narratives and imagination that continue to reshape our world? We don't notice it because we're focused on these other two aspects of, of the social system. Yeah. Yeah, and that was a really powerful chapter for me to read. I, I copied uh, that page with the diagram, <laughs> with the diagram. On, <laughs> on my wall and just reflected on it a lot. And I think for me, you know, I mean, it, it's not an original analysis. Uh, you know, I think mm -hmm. that uh, Michelle Alexander's work and Brian Stevenson's, yes. you know, reading their books, watching the film 13th, uh, yes. going to Montgomery, to EJI's uh, mm -hmm. museum and memorial really, really changed me. And I think, it, you know, in, in Montgomery at their museum, they say, you know, slavery didn't end, it evolved. That's right. Um, That's right. And I think that, you know, your analysis helped me understand, well, why that is. And it's because there are stories yes. under our system. Assumptions, imagination, narratives, right? Yeah. And so that was really powerful for me. And, and then the other piece, you know, Berger and Luckman helped me really reflect on, well, if we want to affect changes to systems and stories, it's not sufficient to persuade individuals mm -hmm. of the, the injustice of those systems, the 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 falsity of those stories yeah. because yeah. all of us are socialized in institutions. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, this really hit me when, you know, I was attending and, and an active member of of a, a, a conservative, uh, a, a white evangelical church mm. um, and, and reflecting on the ways in which myself and, and others, you know, were socialized in that environment and that if I really wanted to affect change, yeah. um, I needed to think about the the institutions that I was a part of. Yes. Because yes. they were, because, I mean, I, I impact the institutions that I'm a part of and they impact me. That's right. And that's true of everybody. Exactly right. Mm -hmm. And so it, it got me started asking the much harder questions, arguably, how do we not only change individuals, myself included, mm -hmm. but how do we change institutions yes. that will perpetually impact and yes. influence yes. individuals that, that interact with them. Yes, and that's been my new mantra. Change individuals, of course. Change yes. system structures, of course. But change the narrative. Change the imagination. Because that's much harder to pull off, honestly. Uh, changing individuals, yeah, we know how to do that. We disciple and we teach. Change system structure, we're learning how to do that. We confront. But changing the narrative, much more internalized, that's actually a much more uphill climb. Uh, but I think folks are beginning to understand that scripture, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not, you know, this individual is not my enemy. Mm -hmm. uh, this individual in the system is not my enemy. The narratives that, that gives fuel and strength to these dysfunctional systems, uh, that's the, the battle, not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities of this present darkness. And so that's where narratives and imagination fall in. Okay, in the conclusion, truth and conciliation, mm. you or Mark, I think Mark wrote the chapter. Yes. yes. So Mark uh, quotes George Erasmus, who said, yes. uh, where common memory is lacking, where people do not share in the same past, there can be no real community. Where community is to be formed, 
common memory must be created. So we're circling back to yes. history here. Yes. Um, and then Mark writes, uh, quote, the United States of America has a white majority that remembers a history of discovery, opportunity, expansion, and exceptionalism. Meanwhile, our communities of color have the lived experience of stolen lands, broken treaties, slavery, Jim Crow laws, Indian removal, ethnic cleansing, lynchings, boarding schools, segregation, internment camps, mass incarceration, and families separated at our borders. Our country does not have a common memory. The United States of America needs a national dialogue on race, gender, and class. A conversation on par with the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions that took place in South Africa, Rwanda, and Canada. It must be an inclusive dialogue, not one that takes place in specific silos. Mm -hmm. And the church must be involved. But, but, because the American church has so broadly accepted the heresy of Christian empire and because the Western church wrote the doctrine of discovery, the church is currently incapable of leading this dialogue. It needs to participate, but it cannot lead. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll repeat that last line because I think it's so important. It needs to participate, but it cannot lead. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about that? Yeah. So. Um, when you co-author a book, yeah. um, and uh, by the way, my my uh, partnership with Mark is just, it's gone beyond just kind of working together. We've become the closest of friends. One of my my uh, mentors, spiritual leaders, and, you know, I really, he's become a dear, dear friend. Um, I remember when we started writing the book, I said, we're either going to be the best of friends or the worst of enemies. <laughs> and I can say, thankfully, we ended up the best of friends. So um, we kind of developed a rhythm uh, when it comes to writing together. So there are certainly books where Mark's voice is uh, front and center and my voice or other where my friend is. It's kind of obvious because of my uh, training as a theologian, historian, that that kind of comes out and Mark's training um, as he, he has background in history as well, but his kind of personal narrative and experience in the native communities and his work in reconciliation. Um, so I remember that particular chapter, he's kind of taking the lead on this but actually kind of going back and forth in some of these terminologies. And I, I really felt like a lot of our ideas came together in that chapter. Uh, and what we see is this idea of imagination and narrative and how that there is no common memory, common imagination, common narrative, or they're so disparate even on the same topic, mm -hmm. right? So when you look at American history, there's one way of looking at it from positions of privilege and power and other ways of looking at it that are not in positions of privilege and power. And so there's different perspectives on it. So how do you create a common memory? So that was kind of the, the call to do that. And in order to do that, we need some of these national dialogues. We need some of these conversations. But our take was um, the, the church has contributed to the negative aspects of this narrative, right? We contributed historically the doctrine of discovery, the ideas of manifest destiny, uh, some of the, like from sea to shining sea, that, that mantra, it comes from a hymn. It's not coming from actually like a, a, a non-Christian perspective. It's coming from a Christian hymn. So we actually contributed very negatively to that narrative. So my take has always been, our take has been, you can't beat a narrative with more of the same narrative. And so if those who created this false narrative and broken narrative in the first place, turns out it was the church, that's the history that we trace, 
then we can't beat that narrative with more of that false narrative. So here's the example that I use. I don't think it was in the book. Uh, several years ago, there was something called the Red Campaign. Uh, it was a huge uh, Super Bowl launch. Uh, there was a big kind of to do about um, uh, about this campaign. And you may remember it was Bono, it was uh, Brad Pitt, Tom Hanks, Denzel, all the A-list Hollywood celebrities were in this commercial. Like they all went after another, talk about the Red Campaign. Um, there's a study that was done by Vince Miller at Georgetown, as well as by Ad Weekly, which uh, kind of monitors the effectiveness of ad campaigns. And they traced that in 10 years, they spent $100 million on this ad campaign for the Red Campaign. Obviously, Super Bowl ad is huge money, and they were putting it on Super Bowls, you know, regularly, and all this kind of advertising. $100 million spent, that was their budget for advertising. Um, Ad Weekly tracked it and said they made $18 million in that 10-year time period. <laughs> when you think about those numbers, it's like, hold up, wait a minute. Um, and my take on that is you can't beat a narrative with more of the same narrative, right? So what's the narrative? Now, the Red Campaign's intention was to confront what? Uh, the AIDS pandemic, specifically in Sub-Saharan Africa, right? So if you think about the AIDS pandemic, specifically in Sub-Saharan Africa, what was going on? Well, one of the things was, um, if you think now about how is AIDS confronted in the US in contrast to the AIDS pandemic in Sub-Saharan Africa? For example, 25 years ago, great basketball player, Magic Johnson, one of my favorites, uh, announces he has HIV AIDS. I remember watching the news report my first thought was Magic will be dead in a year, six months. You know, that was kind of all of us. Like, that was really sad that Magic was going to die after, you know, a great career. When he announced he had HIV, um, it was, yeah, he's going to die in a year. 25 plus years later, Magic's doing okay. <laughs> One of the wealthiest men in the United States, and he certainly looks healthy uh, because there is a, a cocktail of drugs that actually allowed Magic Johnson to live 25 plus years. So it's not that we have, we don't have like something to help people with HIV AIDS. It's that the greed and materialism wants the same kind of money that Magic Johnson's insurance company pays from the poor people in Africa. And so if we're talking about the sub-Saharan African problem, the problem is not, is there medicine that's gonna help? That's actually there. We, we have proof with Magic Johnson, uh, but we're not willing to take the financial hit that pharmaceutical companies are operating out of greed and materialism to not get the money to uh, get the drugs there. So I think the problem there is not more research necessarily, although that would be good. Problem is greed and materialism. Now, what was the red campaign? It was governed by greed and materialism. The red campaign was supposed to make you buy red products and the money goes towards you know, uh, research or whatever. Um, but hey, you know, you buy a red iPod and a portion of the money goes there, but they didn't make money. Why? Because you can't beat a narrative of greed and materialism with more greed and materialism. <laughs> and so that's why when we say things like, how, are, how is the church, which has continually perpetuated this false narrative of white American Christian nationalism or white American exceptionalism or the European supremacy over the black body, so hence slavery, the European supremacy over the native body, hence the Indian removal. Uh, when the church has consistently per perpetuated that narrative, um, when we're entering into that conversation, we can't lead with that narrative. Therefore, I don't know if we have the place to lead. Now, we absolutely need to participate and contribute, 
But to say we're going to lead that conversation, I'm not sure that we have the moral integrity because we have contributed too much to the other side of the conversation. We've led too much of perpetuating false narratives and broken realities. And so if we're going to repent of that, we should. But also we can't assume we're going to lead that conversation when for most of American history, we've actually contributed negatively to that. Yeah, I, I think I've reflected on on that statement a lot. Uh, join but not lead, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and you you reference uh, King's letter from a Birmingham jail in, mm-hmm. in many colors, I think. Mm-hmm. And that I also have reflected on a lot. And and in that letter, King, you know, speaking to to white churches, mm-hmm. um, you know, compares. Uh, the headlight to the taillight, mm. uh, the thermometer to the thermostat. Yes. yes. Uh, and he says that, you know, the church, I think he says elsewhere, you know, has has blessed a status quo yes. that they should have blasted. Yes. And, yes. and in that context, um, it does seem problematic to me for, for us as white Christians, for yeah. us as white churches to say, Hey, we're gonna be a headlight, right? Right. right? right we're gonna be, right. we're gonna be a thermostat. Right. right we're gonna, right. we're gonna lead. Yeah, I think, yeah. you know, I, I read somewhere else. You know, sometimes the, you know, if you're going in the right, the wrong direction, the yeah. fastest way to get where you want to go is actually to turn around. That's right. That's and so right. it seems to me, Dr. Ra, that that the opportunity that we have as as white people, as as white churches, yeah. uh, is is to lead in repentance. Amen. Uh, Amen. To, lament. To, to lament. Yeah, which you also, we, we, and if we, we haven't had time, man, if we did uh, prophetic lament and um, learn so much from you in that book about what lament is and why it matters and, um, and really how little I, I have been discipled in that discipline mm-hmm. um, and the necessity of it. Um, but we don't have time. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so let's, let's wrap it up. Dr. Ra, thank you for your time today, for being a, a new friend and, and teacher to me. Um, any last words for our audience today? Well, I just want to keep encouraging because this work is not easy. And I've been in these conversations now for 30 plus years. Mm. And um, there have been friends who kind of, I'm too tired. And it is, it's exhausting work. And that is maybe a part of the contribution of the church. The church's contribution can be perseverance. Right. I mean, that's all of the scriptures to persevere, remember and persevere. Those are two really good commands for the church to, to reflect on. Um, and so I understand how difficult this work can be because I've been through it for several decades now. Um, and the call to persevere through this. Um, and there will be extraordinarily challenging times. There will be historians know something called the conservative backlash. And mm-hmm. usually when there's kind of progress, whether it's the French Revolution or the U.S. Revolution, there's always a backlash that kind of tails back some of the gains that were made by these revolutionary progressive movements. Um, And so there's always pushback. And um, it's easy to get discouraged. But I always encourage community, work together with friends alongside others, because you get tired when you kind of kind of run up against the wall by yourself uh, and you're trying to constantly go against the system and against the structures and against the narratives, it's exhausting work. Uh, But is there a way that we can kind of do this together as a community? 
across the racial differences, the cultural differences, to actually work together towards that. So thank you for kind of contributing to that conversation so that we can be called together to work against it. Thank you, Dr. Ra. I appreciate you. Thank you. So, Dustin, we're together again. It's good to see you. Good to see you as well, my friend. Yeah, man. So we're here to spend a few minutes discussing what we heard from Dr. Ra and what we hope for Northwest Arkansas generally and the church in Northwest Arkansas specifically. So, Dustin, uh, what do you hear? What do you hope? Well, I want to start off by saying that I really enjoyed the interview. I thought it was good. Uh, I also give you kudos for your chapter two summary <laughs> and how uh, impressed <laughs> Dr. Uh, John Rao was with <laughs> your summarization. Yeah, that's um, But there were a lot of things that he uh, spoke about that stood out to me. Uh, first is just the, the importance of history. Mm-hmm. And uh, we can look around, you know, in our own state, in our country, uh, particularly in the south of this kind of war that is happening on history. And it, it's important because uh, who are the storytellers? Mm-hmm. I think about the history of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. You know, and a lot of historians say that the North won the war, but the South won the narrative story, the narrative war. And because who gets to shape shaped the, the narrative that exists now? And I've always had this complaint kind of uh, of... of Democrats and progressives of being bad storytellers, mm-hmm. of not being winsome enough and uh, creative enough in the stories that we attempt to tell or uh, about the world that we want to live in and how that looks like, how we pursue that, and uh, versus the, the narrative skill, quote-unquote, of uh, sometimes uh, those on, on, the, on the right. And... But the, the history question is huge because we, we, we never have a firm grasp of where we are if we do not know where we've come from, where we've been. And we like to take this attitude that we kind of arrive where we are in a vacuum, mm-hmm. that there weren't these intentional decisions and actions that have taken place that have caused us to be where we are. And that if we take that approach, then we are, you know, helpless in trying to uh, prevent ourselves from going back to where we had once been. And we're seeing that, right? When, 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 when those uh, wars are taken on history and we, we are limited in the type of truth that we can tell, mm-hmm. That gives people the freedom to go back and to try to resurrect some things that have been killed off that should have stayed that way. Right. And we talk about, you know, type of voting legislation and other types of legislation that is being proposed and passed in various states across the country. Right. That are made possible by the suppression of holistic history and truth telling. Mm -hmm. And so, like, you know, you know, that's that's a passion of mine that, you know, we are able to tell the truth about history. And it doesn't have to be 
all, you know, sunshine and rainbows, mm-hmm. right? There's a lot that we can learn from the mistakes that we've made. Probably the ma- majority of what we can learn is from the mistakes that we've made. Mm-hmm. And so, and that kind of leads me into another thing that that really stood out to me was um, the conversation about power. Yeah. And uh, in a lot of my conversations that I've had um, in Christian spaces, there's been kind of this denial that power exists as something that needs to be reformed and restored and to dealt with um, equitably. Um, that, you know, <laughs> that we, we tr- that is communicated as this type of mirage, mm-hmm. that is not really a thing that we have c- control over, when it definitely is. And, but when you are in power, it is like a fish in water, right? You struggle to see the world any other kind of way. And so oftentimes where people are having these advocacy conversations about, no, we need a seat at the table, right? There needs to be uh, equitable distribution of power. And people don't understand what we are talking about because the only way that they see the world is through themselves having authority and power to be able to shape the spaces in which they live in, right? And 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 to force other people to acquiesce, to assimilate to those same systems for survival. We miss that in that we don't think that power is prominent and it's important. But no, we... Mo, all of us, to some degree, right, in our relationships, have power. As a as a parent, I have power, right? You know, and 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 Dr. Ra gave really, you know, good examples about that in himself as a professor, as an academic, and 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 how that is um, leveraged in his relationships. I think that's something that we really need to pay attention to, and because really, when we come to the to to the public discourse about power, what people are saying when they are asking for power is that they have a lived experience to where those who are in power have not stewarded that power well for people who look like them. Mm -hmm. And so they say that I need power or someone who looks like me to have power so that they can advocate and stand up for me in the spaces that are needed where that has not happened in the past. Right? It's not power for power's sake. It is Mm -hmm. power for the fact that you know, you have demonstrated that you will not see an act, right, in the good of those whom are not like you, right? But you are acting your own self-benefit, as most human beings do, That's right. right? And so in order for there to be equitable table, people have to have a balance of power because we as human beings have blind spots, right? Even, you know, in the reality, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a black man, but I'm not a black woman. Mm-hmm. And so there was things that I would advocate for as a black man that would cause harm to black women because I have blind spots is by the fact that I'm black but I'm still a man Mm -hmm. that I have to be willing to acknowledge and accommodate for right in the spaces that we create so that those people who have historically tended to be uh, have less of a voice to have be able to take up less space, can't take up the needed and adequate um, space. And so, you know, that's the power conversation. 
And then lastly is the story. And we, we hinted at that earlier. But when he, when he came back to it at the end of the conversation, after you beautifully summarized chapter two and, and, uh, and as the conversation moved along, where we talk about, you know, the, the narratives that exist and how oftentimes what we have done, you know, we talked about um, institutionalization. Yeah. Right. And an internalization mm-hmm. of of people who have whom have uh, forced a cultural lens of the world onto society. And a part of that lens is this kind of uh, full uh, respectability of American history, right, as we talked about earlier as well, um, and that everything needs to be funneled through that lens. And that, that you American have, exceptionalism. That, yeah, American exceptionalism. Thank mm-hmm. you for bringing that term because it was eluding me for a second. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and forcing other people to live into that reality and to their own harm. And the narrative that it exists of who really are the storytellers mm-hmm. is the important thing. And he says, we can talk about systemic change. We can talk about personal change, but who is crafting the narratives? Mm-hmm. Who's telling the important stories is something that is vital. And what I have seen is that even in our current cultural moment, that from the left to the right, that is still white people telling the stories mm-hmm. on both ends of the spectrum. White men and white women are telling the stories. And so that is, there's a lot of power that comes with the ability to craft stories because based on the narrative that you craft, that tells how you interpret other things right. in the world. And so what we need is a, is, a, is a shift in who's able to craft narrative, who's able to craft story, and whose stories are being told, whose stories are being pushed to the forefront, whose stories do I get to hear and see. And when I hear those stories, are those stories the authentic stories? Me and my wife were just having a conversation because we were uh, we had watched we saw this reel that was that was talking about how so many of the books that have been catered towards black children recently that have black characters in them have been written by uh, white authors, mm. and it had blown our minds by some of these books that we bought for our kids because we thought it was representation not only in the characters, but in the people telling the story, when it really was just people telling white stories and putting black bodies on the pages and covers. And, like, the importance of being able to tell story from your own vantage point, right? That is not watered down, right? That is not whitewashed. That is vital to be able to happen, um, freely and openly. And so we ha- there's a, a narrative war that exists. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think my hope, my hope in light of all of that um, is that, one, the church would be able to see the story that has been co-opted and how that is so different from the story that Jesus tells. The stories that the Scripture tales about how do we live, how do we pursue justice and righteousness in the world, and how 
you have lived so much against that mm-hmm. as an institution mm-hmm. and the internalization that you have pressed down on people who have participated in that institution. That, 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 that story needs to be told, right? That, that reality needs to be accepted. And then, and then secondly, I, I loved how you guys closed with this, with that thought that, you know, the church needs to participate, but it, but, but it cannot lead. Yeah. And I think that is so important mm-hmm. because this narrative that has been crafted by Christendom, mm-hmm. right, is that the church is to pursue power, right? When it is the exact opposite of what Jesus has called the church to pursue, right? Mm-hmm. Like we see instance after instance of Jesus trying to push people away from the pursuit of social political power, right? And then the idea of like, how do we live by repentance and by lament mm-hmm. and by listening, right? Versus by having this belief that I impose the kind of change that I want in the world by by gathering and hoarding power, right? When really what what happens when you have power is that you have a tendency to oppress people if you have power. That's right. No matter who it is, we have the tendency to move everything in a direction that benefits us personally and not outwardly towards others. And so maybe power is the problem, Mm. and I might need to take a powerless position Mm -hmm. if I actually want to be faithful to the way Jesus calls us to live. Mm. Man, that's really good, Dustin. I appreciate you sharing that. And um, yeah, I agree. I mean, this was one of my favorite interviews that we've done with Dr. Ra because, I mean, he's written so much. I've learned so much from him. And I agree with you, um, you know, the the importance of history and of, of stories telling the truth about the past so as to live into a, a better future um, and a power. I think for me, there's a few things that I heard that that re- were really important to me and continue to be that I've reflected on like very consistently. Um, I mean, one, one is about power. And just honestly, Dustin, and we've processed this in our relationship, like it is very hard, it is very unnatural to to take a less powerful position. I think for all of us, but especially for me as a white man, like I, um, to use Dr. Edmondson's language, have been socialized to believe that when I walk into a room as a white person, and I wouldn't say this, you know, overtly, but if you watch my behavior, you would say he, he thinks that he's somebody who should be in charge. And, and Dustin, like it wasn't until I was in my 30s that I followed the leadership of a black person in any real way. I mean, I did, I did, you know, racial reconciliation work. I did things with and for black people in this community. And some of those things were not bad things. But, but I did not follow the leadership of a black person in any real way until I was in my 30s. And I joined the Washington County Community Remembrance Project. And, like, I learned so much from that experience. And... Um, but, you know, I, I lament that. Like, why, why did it take me so long? And even still, and, and again, we process this in our relationship and in my relationship with other friends of color. Um, my inclination is to, to take that um, primary and spokesman role. 
But, um, you know, Dr. King in um, Where Do We Go From Here, he suggested that the white liberal needs to accept a transformation of the role, where it was once a primary and spokesman role needs to become a secondary and supportive role. Because he said that, you know, he, he said freedom is participation in power. And so if I want people to be free, then I need to share some power with them. Um, but as Dr. Ross said, the folks who, who typically don't want to talk about power are the folks who have it. <laughs> right? So it's, it's uncomfortable. Um, but the other piece is, is um, you know, the, the part that I summarized in, in the interview. And, and I'll, I'll share that, that content and then the context, like why it meant so much to me and means so much to me. Um, so again, you know, connecting the dots between Dr. Ra and Dr. Edmondson, this idea that we're, we're socialized um, to, to be the people that we are, right? We're, as an individual, I'm influenced by the institutions that I'm a part of, and I influence those institutions. And so I'm not, I'm not independent from, I'm not immune to the influence of the institutions that I'm a part of. They, they affect me, they change me for better or worse. And so Dr. Robb puts that idea in the context of the evolution of slavery, right? Slavery, Jim Crow, New Jim Crow. And he says, you know, these systems continue to evolve because there's stories under them. You know, I, like, I mow my grass, um, but, you know, we use the word, you know, we mow over the weeds, right? If you, don't, if you don't get to the root, the stuff just grows back. And so similarly, like when we look at our country, we see the continued oppression of black people, the systems change, but because the stories don't change, white supremacy and American exceptionalism, exceptionalism, those systems evolve. And so, you know, the the story, the context. You know, I've spent most of my I've spent most of my life in white Christian spaces, um, mostly more conservative evangelical spaces. And in 2020, as you know, I've, I've shared briefly on the podcast previously, I had the opportunity to, to raise some money from white people in churches for black Christian leaders with the Witness Foundation. And, and so what we were doing, Dustin, was supporting black Christian leaders, but why we were doing it, the, the story. We said this is an expression of repentance for the sin of white supremacy. And, and interestingly, interestingly, there were some white Christian people, some of whom are, are still friends of mine, others of whom are not, but who said, Lowell, we support the what? We, we want to support black Christian leaders, but we can't support the why. We can't be associated with the words white supremacy publicly. And now, you know, I'm, I'm incredulous at that. But then I really wasn't because I was still a part of that system. And in that system, in that community, that hesitation, that concern, it made sense to me because those, those, those institutions are moving at the pace, at a pace that's going to keep white people comfortable, right? And so I had to step out of, you know, to use sort of your language, that fishbowl so that I could see what water was. Like, I remember, Dustin, I was a member of a church, and I asked the, the pastor and the elders for money in January of 2020. This was after January 6th. This is after everything that happened in 2020. This is after we saw Jesus saves flags flying beside Confederate flags at, at the nation's capital. 
And as I, as I made my case for reparations, the question that was asked of me was, do we have to use the words white supremacy? And at the time I hesitated. I was like, well, no, you can use whatever words you want. I just, we need the money. But I stepped out of that meeting. I called a friend, a, a, a black woman who's a member of a black church in town. And I asked her, am I, am I crazy? Like, is it unreasonable for me to have this expectation? And she said, Lowell, what else would you call it? And she proceeded to tell me the story. This church has a, a food pantry. And she told me that the food pantry had received bomb threats from white supremacists that month. And in that moment, like, that, that changed me, right? Like, because I realized we are living in the same, the same community but into like very different worlds. And, and so, you know, we're tempted, I think, to say, you know, about stories. Maybe it's just semantics, you know? I mean, what, what does it matter what, what you call the thing, right? But my concern and I'm trying, Dustin, to have this conversation with you in a way that I would have it with, with the people that I'm, that I'm critiquing, right, as, as gently and as directly as I can, because I think this is very common in our community. Like, the experience that I have is, is that I had, I think, is very representative of a lot of folks um, who, and so I think it's just really important that we were honest about about the way we, we talk, the words we use, and why we do or don't use them. And if, if we, we understand this, this analysis, these, these systems, and that there are stories under these systems, and we say, I think that's correct. That's, a, that's an accurate analysis, but it makes me or my constituents uncomfortable. Therefore, I'm not willing to tell the truth. Like, we just need to be really, really honest about that. Because that, I mean, that's a, that's, that's a huge moral problem. And, and so I think, you know, I've, I've talked for, at some length about what, what I heard about power, about systems, about stories. Um, I think my, my plea to, to our community, um, specifically the, the white Christian community that I come from, and I'll speak, you know, to my more maybe conservative friends in that community. You know, I, I hope that we can reflect on what we're willing to say. Like, what are the words that we're using and why are we using them? Or why are we not using them? Can we, can we please be honest about that? And to my more progressive friends who honestly, in, in my, my limited experience, because I come from the more, you know, conservative side of the tracks, I think my, my more progressive friends are typically more willing to use the words to say their things. White supremacy, American exceptionalism, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I think my, you know, my gentle push to my progressive friends is, okay, you're willing to say that, but what are you willing to do? W what are you willing to do that's going to cost you something? Um, yeah, I think that's enough. Can I make a, a last statement? Yeah, you can make as many statements as you want. I don't know if we're out of time. I don't want to go over. But uh, I, I want to go back to the idea of power. Mm -hmm. And because 
in these conversations, it is at the issue of power that they begin to self-destruct. And, and it's, not a, it's not resources, because resources are not power. Money is not power, all right? Power is influence, the ability to craft narratives, to shape how people think and how people make decisions and why they make decisions the way that they do. And it is often when that comes to the table that conversations end because one thing, as you mentioned earlier, that people do not want to do is to put themselves under the power of another person, right? We want to hold the power privately within ourselves. And so that causes these conversations to end. Or what we, what, what another thing that ends up happening is if the conversation doesn't end, is that the conversation becomes perpetually stalled. Right. Because as you said, this is something that I say all the time to you. I was like, you know, change is going to happen at the pace of white comfortability. Right. right? We do not want to offend our white friends and run them off. And so but a similar thing happens that happens like in in sports negotiations. I talk about particularly like the NFL. Right. The reason that the NFL doesn't have the kind of collective bargaining agreement that the NBA has or that uh, baseball players have is because they do not have the leverage. And so the reason is is because there's so many more players, right, and their careers are so much shorter. And so owners know that if they, they can win the waiting game because – the majority of the NFL players don't make the big money, and so they can't miss a season of sports, right, without really damaging their family's financial position. And so the owners win these collective bargaining agreements because they can wait longer. They have money. They're not going to miss a meal if they miss a season. And so what happens in, these, in, in the conversations around race and justice is that that white people who have power know that they can play the waiting game with white allies because what tends to happen is that white people have postured themselves as allies, as partners in this work, have the tendency to get fatigued and they get tired and they feel like their time and resources are being wasted because nothing is happening and then they give up and tap out. And then where does that leave? It leaves the people of color, black people in particular, in this conversation, right, you know, you know, for lack of a better word, asked out, helpless, because the allies, those who are partnering with them, did not have the longevity because power won out. And so and what I often advocate for is for white people who are partnering in this work to have resilience in the ability to endure for the long haul. And what I have tended to see is that my white brothers and sisters who have participated in this work to take it up as a year, two, or three project, you know, and hopefully in that year, two, or three to make some significant changes and then not, then put it on the shelf and maybe pull it out again if something major happens. 
And so nothing ever changes then, that there's the needed for strong endurance to make changes here. If you are ever to defeat those in power, you have to be able to play the long game. You, you can't win a short game with power, right? <laughs> it's an endurance thing. Power has too, many, too, too much resources, too much time, too much experience for you to win in a year or two. But it's the long game. And so that's my challenge for in our local context and in our broader context for those who are participating to, to be resilient and willing to endure for the long haul. Not it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. Yeah. At this point it's obvious. Close your browser. There, that's all for today's episode. Uh, y'all please come back for an interview with propaganda next month. And go to our website, reparationsnowinwa.com. That's reparationsnowinwa.com to get more information about the R Word events, like our community reading and discussion about the book Reparations and our community viewing and discussion about the film, The Big Payback, this fall. Thanks. Enjoying the time I got while living in the tension of the world's imperfection, locking in on the sovereign reign of the king of all kings. Trusting he'll make right all things. He'll make right all things.